0: I'm just like you today, I'm just really moved by the music, the worship time, and just uh, such a real reminder from the stories of God's faithfulness. Most of us in here have been through tragedies, maybe some even experienced tragedies this weekend, and you realize that the only thing that you have to hang on to, which is real at that time, is God. And here at Grace, we teach through the Bible, we teach through books of the Bible, and I'm going to tell you why we do that. We do that because in the darkest places of life, when we're looking for answers, sure, circumstances, we can see God's handiwork in nature, in the things that happen. But the way that we know what God is saying to us is through his holy scriptures, through his word. And so if you're a guest here today, we go through book by book and we teach through a book verse by verse. And so it's a little different maybe from some of the churches you've been a part of who are more topical and more like this topic this week, this topic that week. We go through books because we want to see what God has to say. And we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy and we're going to cover an entire chapter, look at some highlights of some some things we've talked about because everything that we need to talk about is found right here in the chapter that we've already been dealing with. But before I do that, I want to tell you real quick about one of the best gifts I ever received. My wife got this for me, I believe, a couple years ago. This is a study Bible or a notes-taking Bible. Not a study Bible, a notes-taking Bible. And basically what this is, it has wide margins on both sides where you can write down the things as you learn, as you hear a preacher speak as you are in your quiet time and you can take these things down and why I like this better than a journal is because nobody ever gets rid of a bible this will be passed down from generation to generation to my kids to their kids and and so this is something that's lasting that I will not get rid of and so I want to encourage you maybe to come up with a system for you where you're thinking through what God's saying. You're not just reading the Bible to read, but you're reading to hear from God. And I want to give away um, one of these study Bibles today just to kind of highlight our book table back there by giving away a book and this study Bible. Uh, a couple of seats in front of you, there's uh, one of these things. There's two seats that have these in front. If you just look in front of you, the seat in front of you, and reach up and grab, it's in front of you, stuck behind the seat ahead of you. Anybody want to acknowledge that you have one there? All right, cool. Lauren, you have one. Come up here. And somebody else, who else has one? All right, somebody over there. All right, somebody come up. Who is that? Ryland, come up here, Ryland. And if you have one, give it away to somebody else, all right? And Ryland, I got a book for you. This is a book we are giving or selling back at the book table. It's called How to Grow. And uh, Ryland, if you want to take this and give it to somebody else where you can keep it for yourself, that's fine. You can have that too. Thanks, man. And so we're people of the book here. We want to know what Scripture says. And so I hope if you return, if you're a guest and you return here, you will see that as we finish just going through 2 Timothy and studying the Word, how God speaks to us through Scripture. So let's pray, and we're going to look at chapter 2 of Second Timothy, and then we're going to look at a few verses that are mixed in that we've looked at already, as well as two verses at the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day that we can celebrate, to draw extra attention to a truth that we should really celebrate every single day, that we should never have a day pass, that we don't contemplate the significance of your crucifixion and resurrection. And God, we thank you, as, as we're saying so well in our songs this morning, of the difference it makes in our life, how that when you come into our lives, that you begin to change us and mold us, and we find our complete forgiveness and our right standing only in Jesus and not in what we do. We love you and we thank you for the way that you're working. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back in the early 90s when I moved to Tallahassee from Chattanooga, I was sort of a marginal Braves fan at that time. If you know the history, if you're as old as me and know the history, kind of the Braves there, you know that the late 80s to early 90s were a pretty rough time for the Braves, all right? They did not do very well at all. But something changed, and me not really being a big fan in the 80s, even though right there in Chattanooga, the Braves was like the team, you know? Um, Something happened. They started to click. They had the right pitchers, the right hitters. Everything clicked, and in the 90s, they went on an unprecedented streak of winning their division and just incredible, incredible seasons. And it was amazing because in the 80s, the late 80s, nobody really was a fan uh, of the Braves. I mean, they were a fan. If you lived in Atlanta, you liked the Braves. But, I mean, the attendance numbers were dismal. I mean, very few people came to the game compared to when they started winning because nobody likes a loser, honestly, do they? Nobody likes a team that just loses all the time. I mean, you got the few committed core. But beyond that, you know, it, it's, it, everybody's fair weather. They want to feel good. They want to feel like they're winning, that the good things are happening. And so that's why when you got to the 90s, the stadiums were packed. There was this, this electric in the stadium if you were there. And you know that those moments, there was this, it was just, it's incredible, hard to describe the moment. Everybody likes a winner. Nobody likes a, a loser. And only real fans stick it out during those tough times. And I'm going to compare that to our faith because in this context of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor who's in a church at a place called Ephesus, And he's there, and he's really, really suffering. And he's not suffering physically necessarily, but he's suffering through a lot of people in the church, false teachers who were belittling him, looking down on him because of his age, not giving him the respect that he was due. And at that season of his life, he was pretty much feeling down and rejected and maybe even contemplating leaving the ministry altogether. And Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him. And he writes, first and second Timothy are really a lot of words of encouragement. But I want to come to chapter 2, verse 8, for really the, the central encouragement that Paul gives Timothy in this moment when he's feeling down. Because he realizes, Paul realizes, just like the fair-weathered fans, everybody wants a winner, nobody wants a loser unless you're true. Unless you're true to the team. And he's saying, Timothy, you need to be true to who it matters, who matters. And that's Jesus Christ. Look at this. Verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He says, okay, Timothy, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. Remember what team you're on. Remember what matters, even though you feel like right now that you're, you're dealing with so much stuff and Jesus may not feel close and personal at this moment and you're, and you're really, really hurting here in this moment of time, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. Now, honestly, would Timothy like literally forget Jesus who made such an impact in his life? I mean, he couldn't do that. It's kind of like when one of our kids go off to college and we say, hey, don't forget old mom and dad, right? I mean, you know they're literally not going to forget us, right? But They're going to forget us, right? They're going to move on with life, do their thing, and you're saying, look, call home occasionally, all right? right, Text me occasionally. Get in touch with me occasionally. Make us proud by the way that you live. And so Paul's telling Timothy, not that he's worried about him literally forgetting Jesus, but there's a difference between remembrance that is significant, that really recalls something that matters versus just, I'm going to click my mind in gear for a second and remember something. It's a, it's a different kind of remembrance. It's a remembrance that re- requires us to recalibrate our lives to what matters. We're remembering something and we have to adjust our life to recalibrate it in order to make that thing what it should be. Right, recalibration, that's, we got kids in here, you're like, recalibration, what's that mean? All right, recalibration is just a simple word that means adjusting something to the correct standard. You're, you recalibrate things that are scales, things that weigh things, have to be recalibrated from time to time. In fact, I had this van one time, true story, you can see the owner's manual here, if you didn't believe me, needed to recalibrate the compass on the dash And it told me to go out and drive in circles two times to recalibrate the dash, all right? I did that in the middle of my street. I'm driving my Pontiac Montana van in circles. I'm sure the neighbors are like, what's he drinking, all right? And, and, And they're like wondering what's going on. It didn't work after two times, so I had to do it again and a couple more times again. And it still didn't work, and I just gave up on it. That was the way we were supposed to recalibrate our compass so it points due north, so it's correct. And so, when we look at Jesus, when we remember Jesus, when we truly fix our eyes upon Jesus, we remember Him in a way that causes us to recalibrate our lives. Any other type of remembrance is not the biblical remembrance that we're going to celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. It's not the remembrance of Scripture. As you take the Lord's Supper, as Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper, and I'll read it at the end of the message in First in First Corinthians eleven. Paul reminded them, he said, remember, think about it, think about it. He used the word remember twice in this passage to help them remember the situation that Jesus went through, to reenact that in their minds, but then adjust their lives to what they're remembering, that it's making an impact, it's making a difference. It's so much more than engaging the mind to a past event. And so redeeming redemption, or I'm sorry, recalibration is what we need to do as we take communion today. So more than just an awareness of Jesus as we take communion, it really it reminds us of, of his presence. He's with us. And think about that. When he's writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, remember Jesus, rose, risen from the dead. Again, it's not just a memory, but it's more than just, let me think through these events. He's remembering as a result of the crucifixion and now the resurrection that Jesus is alive and his presence is actually with us. And that's what we do during communion. We realize that Jesus is with us. He, we're not remembering him as a man who died on a cross and even as a man who rose again. We're remi- reminding ourselves of the fact that he was God and he rose again and we recalibrate our lives to him. So remember. And there's so much danger in the fact of just passively reminding ourselves of Jesus on an Easter Sunday. I mean, I dare say that most churches, many churches in our community look like this today. They're packed out because people are like, okay, Easter, I gotta remember Jesus. That's the thing we do in our culture. I remember Jesus, gotta go celebrate Jesus today. And it's a remembrance that doesn't require any calibrate, recalibration of life. It's just simply a reminder because it's the thing we do. So let me give you a test today of the authenticity of your remembrance. Let me give you in your mind right now, a test for the authenticity of you. Are you growing progressively in your love and obedience to Jesus? Are you growing progressively, not overnight, not in one moment, but in a process of growing to love Jesus more and to be more obedient to Jesus? Because remembering Jesus, truly remembering Jesus, changes everything. It changes everything about us. Even Paul, the author of this book of 2 Timothy, is just a perfect example. Here he was, an affluent, well-educated, probably wealthy guy, Jewish insider, was the guy when they walked down the street, everybody noticed and looked, because in his culture, in his society, he was important. He was an important guy. But when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Everything changed. Everything changed. He gave up everything, his prestige, his power, his position, his money. He gave it all up to follow Jesus because his encounter with Jesus required him to recalibrate his life to something different. Jesus changes us when we remember. The theme kind of the, the singing was, I've got a story, or hearing stories, listening to stories and it was interesting, this last week I met with a guy, his name was Adam, and Adam um, was talking to me about just about his, his life. And I just kind of want to weave in his story today to the sermon because it's such an example of what we're talking about. Adam talked to me about how the fact that he grew up in church, even he was, went to church, on to youth group on Wednesday nights oftentimes. He was a guy who professed Jesus as a child, But as so many people do, as he got older, he began to question his faith, doubt his faith. And there's a lot more that goes into it that I don't want to get into today. But ultimately, in high school, he rejected Jesus Christ and Christianity. Well, after high school, he went off to UGA to pursue his education. And at that point, he had gotten to where he was a self-declared atheist. He would just tell people, I don't believe in God. He wasn't one of those hostile toward Christians, atheists, but he just had no need for it. He just didn't believe it. He just rejected it completely. And so he he got to the point intellectually where he just said, Jesus can't be who he really said he was. I just can't accept the fact that Jesus was that. See, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. Look back at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. And Paul makes a point to say, risen Timothy, risen from the dead. Timothy knows that risen from the dead. And as in all historical events, there could be room for intellectual doubt to these events because you can't prove them empirically. You can't know. I mean, you weren't there to see it. But Paul's writing and he's saying, look, this happened. This is true. And not only that, many, many people, thousands of people devoted themselves to Jesus after he rose again, even though it ultimately would cost them so much like Paul it did. And many people who followed Jesus not only were persecuted by the government of their times, but worse, they were persecuted by their own family and their own friends. Even the disciples themselves, if you know the story, after the crucifixion, when Jesus was arrested and was about to be crucified, they ran off like scared children. They were terrified. They had no backbone, and only Peter was able to stand at a a shot where he could see or possibly John as well. And even Peter denied Jesus three times in that moment under pressure because he didn't want to be taken and, and done what Jesus was having done to him. But these same guys who ran like scared children Many, the majority, 10 of the 12, gave their lives for Jesus. They were martyrs for Jesus. Why would people do that? Why would people die for someone who was in a grave? They wouldn't do it because the tomb was empty and they knew it and hundreds of people, including them, saw Jesus after he rose again. 1 Corinthians fifteen six. Paul's writing and he's just saying, look, uh, Jesus was seen by more than 500 people Uh, And don't take my word for it, he says, more than most of these are still alive. Most of these people, you can go and find them, knock on their door and talk to them. You saw Jesus? Yes, I saw him after 500 people. And so Paul is making a point to Timothy, look, Jesus, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus, but not just in a way that gives intellectual assent to Jesus, but in a way that understands and remembers and recalibrates your life to him. And then he says, Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What does he mean by that? God promised the nation of Israel way back. If you go left in your Bible, all the way back to Deuteronomy, was really the first real specific prophecy about a descendant of King David who would one day establish a righteous throne that would last forever. In fact, the word Messiah, you may have heard the word Messiah. Messiah is equivalent to the Greek word Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. And so Paul is making a point just to remind Timothy that Jesus is the one who will bring in God's eternal kingdom. He's the promised one, the one who will fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And now if we skip down to verse 17 in chapter 2 there, I want to call our attention to two guys who were at some level involved in the church there at Ephesus with Timothy, who were the guys causing trouble for Timothy. And these were guys who knew about Jesus, but clearly they didn't remember Jesus. They didn't own Jesus and recalibrate their lives to Jesus. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philatus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection... Has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Just a quick reminder for those who were here. These guys were basically saying that the resurrection was just a spiritual thing. It was metaphorical. It was just a symbolic of something that people didn't actually raise from the dead. And while they weren't necessarily specifically denying Jesus' resurrection, they were denying all resurrection altogether. They thought that it wasn't reality, that this was symbolic. And so what they had done, they had accepted the current philosophy of their time that kind of was beginning to think that all matter, physical matter, is evil, and then everything spiritual is, is good. So it was unthinkable to them that somebody would physically rise from the dead because your physical body is evil. Not to overwhelm you with that philosophy of the time, but it just goes to show you how they got to that point where they said, you know, the, the resurrection didn't really happen. But Paul says that because they deny the resurrection, they've left the path of truth altogether. Their remembrance of Jesus was not the remembrance that gives them eternal life and brings them into God's kingdom. It's not the remembrance that changes a person at the deepest level. And Paul writes this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 14. Read this for you. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And so the truth Paul reiterates, and we know to be true if we are a believer in here, that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection authenticated Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we remember Jesus, we remember the significance of his person, what he did, the reason he came to the cross in the first place to die for our sins, and we have to recalibrate our lives. Let me go back to my story about Adam. As he was telling me just his story, he said that he just had at UGA, he was just living life, just doing his thing, not really, you know, religion was pretty much completely off his radar. And maybe again, like I said, he was an outspoken atheist, But everybody knew by looking at him as an atheist, which, by the way, is very sad because there's many people who aren't bold enough to say they're an atheist, but their lifestyle shows that they're an atheist because they claim to know Christ. But the reality of their life is saying God doesn't exist. I live however I want to live. And so give him props that he was bold enough to say, I just don't believe. But interestingly enough, through an insignificant encounter that through somebody he was studying with, a person invited him to go to church. And while he refused going to church with the person, she was bold enough to say this. She said, You know, God cares and God loves you. God cares and God loves you. A college student, bold enough to look somebody in the eye and say, God cares and God loves you. And in that moment, there wasn't a change. And he didn't say, Oh, I believe now, but it planted a seed. And he said, "What I thought was, why would a God care about me if there is a God? Why in the world would He care about me, little me?" Soon after he finished with school, was there for six years, finished up a doctor of pharmacy degree, and he moved to Atlanta. Took a great job, single guy, had lots of money to finance the bachelor lifestyle. Right, living the life. Living in Atlanta, living the single life, partying at night, living for himself. Things looked good from the outside, but they weren't good. Something was wrong. And what Paul says about the false teachers, if we skip down to verse 25 and 26, is exactly what Adam needed to experience. Look at verse 25, the second part of 25. Paul writes this to the false, about the false teachers. He says, God may perhaps... Grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I want you to hear that again because that's very, very important. God may perhaps grant these false teachers, these unbelieving people, those who might affirm Jesus intellectually, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. What does Paul not say there? Paul doesn't say, I hope these guys get smarter so they can figure this out. I hope they can be more intellectual so that they can intellectually grab this knowledge and hang on to it. He doesn't say that. He says what they need is a repentance that leads to the truth. Because faith is ultimately and always a gift from God. And we need to recognize that faith and doubt are never just intellectual issues. People want to say they're intellectual issues, but they're way more than intellectual issues. In fact, the false teachers here, you're going to see in a second what really the real issue is. But what Adam needed and what everyone here who can give intellectual assent to Jesus Christ, but you don't really remember him in a way that it's significant and recalibrate your life to that because it changes you. You need what Romans 2.4 says. Paul writes this. He says, don't you see how wonderful, wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? What Paul said these false teachers needed was to experience God's grace. They need to experience God's grace and an understanding that their sin has separated them from Jesus Christ, from God and his holiness. And all the philosophizing and, and, and thinking and, and analyzing and proclaiming of their false teaching falls short because they have never experienced God's grace. That God, look at verse 25 again, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And here's why faith is a gift from God and we need his grace, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. Never, ever lose sight of that. And some of you may be checking out right now. You may like, Satan? Yeah, that seemed far-fetched. This seems like so ancient. Life is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual war. And there's a true enemy of your soul who hates you intensely. And his goal is destruction of you. And he will stop at nothing until that happens. And Paul writes... These guys need to come to their senses, that Jesus would grant them the grace to come to their senses. This Greek word that we get come to our senses from means to awaken from this drunken stupor that you're in, to return to soberness, to be sober-minded and think clearly. And so Paul says they'll come to their senses. They'll come out of this spiritual fog that Satan has blinded their eyes. And let me tell you, that's exactly what happened to Adam. One morning after a a late, late night of partying, he wakes up laying in his bed. He's feeling terrible, full of guilt, and he asks himself, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing? Satan had made him a captive to his desires, to his selfishness, to himself. He was spiritually blind, and God began to open his eyes so that he could see clearly the deception that he was under, so he could escape the snare of the devil. And if you're like me, you think, when you think snare of the devil, you think of pentagrams and blood sacrifices and so on. I grew up in the 80s, all right? The the bands, that's what they did. They wanted to show me how evil they are, all right? They're gonna get album covers with pentagrams and satanic symbols, but it was all marketing for the most part because Satan doesn't work that way. I love the way Russell Moore puts it on this quote that'll be on the screen. The devil just doesn't usually appear in goat-headed horror trying to tell us how much blood he once sacrificed. After all, the devil is a deceiver and an accuser. What he wants is to herd people gently toward death without them ever even seeing it as death until it's too late. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to capture us. He wants us to think, you know what, Jesus, yeah, he may be real. He may have existed, but I'm not going to recalibrate my life for him because I have no real need of Jesus. I have no real need to, to change my life. And what Satan wants is for you to be a good religious person who pays your taxes, you're moral, you're a pretty good family man for the most part that people know, you're doing all the right things, so maybe one day you'll tip the scales and God will let you into heaven. That's what Satan wants you to buy into today. And you've missed everything that we've sang and everything that we talked about if you arrive at that conclusion that I hope one day I'm good enough to tip the scales because you won't be, trust me. Jesus paid the sacrifice for your sin. Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death in your place, sacrificed so that you could have the great exchange. Christ's righteousness, he takes your sin. You take his righteousness, he takes your sin. Amazing. Somebody told me this morning, I just don't feel worthy. And I said, you're worthy in Jesus. You're worthy in Jesus because Jesus paid it all. And all to him you owe. And we live our lives for glory for him because who he is and he took our lives and he recalibrated them and put us going in a different direction. That's the remembrance that we celebrate in communion and that's a remembrance we should be celebrating today for Easter. Well, over the last few years, God began to get a hold of Adam and work on him. And I'm here to tell you, Adam is going to be baptized. He's right back there. Raise your hand, Adam. Picture on the screen right here of him and his family. Adam is going to be baptized in a couple of weeks. That's an awesome story, isn't it? that's what God does. And as the stories that you heard, there's not always the happily ever after ending that we read in the storybooks. Sometimes it is a child that we lose, or a parent we lose, or a tough situation we go through, but we're all going to go through those things in life. But when we recognize, and we remember Jesus, that the reason he died, and the reason he rose again is so that we could have his presence. And we could have a relationship with God. And that sin will no longer come between us and God. And he invites us into his family. And he recalibrates our life because his love and his grace and his goodness is just poured out upon us. And there's no way that you can affirm that intellectually over the years of your life and not be changed in some way, shape, or form. That you're growing in obedience and holiness to Jesus And that you want to know more of him. And it may not look perfect. And you may feel unworthy a lot of times. But you look to Jesus. You remember Jesus. And you keep your eyes on Jesus. You read his word. You be in his word. You hear from his word. You write down, here's the things that Jesus has shown me from his word. And you remember those truths. And you live your life based upon this reality. Not what I feel. Because if you just base it on your feeling, you're going to be the 80s Braves fan who abandons the team. But if you base your, 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 your hope and your faith upon Jesus and his word, no matter what you go through, you give testimony to the fact, Jesus is alive. I will live forever. He paid it all. I can rest in him. As we go to a time of communion today, Communion, again, is all about remembrance and responding. It's about God's grace. Look up here for a second. It's all about God's grace meeting us. I'm going to read for you. It won't be on the screen. Just listen as I read this. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, till he comes back and establishes his kingdom forever. So at Grace Church, we don't require you to be a member of this church to take communion, but we do ask that you know Jesus, that you have a real, true, authentic relationship with Jesus. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Maybe last night you sinned terribly, but that means that you say, Jesus, I know you're my savior. I know my faith is in you, and I confess that sin to you. I confess that I failed you and I misrepresented to you. And I thank you for your grace that brings forgiveness, that grace that was given on the cross for me. And I claim that today. No matter where you find yourself, you're worthy if Jesus is in you and you know Jesus. Not know Jesus. Look, know Jesus. You love Jesus, you delight in Jesus, He's your everything.